You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, you rode your bike here today. Yes, I did. As if to put right in my face your good health. Ah, You know what really feels good? Just, just doing this, breathing in and out through my nose, unencumbered. You know what? I have vague uh, memories of being able to do the same myself before I... Uh, I caught a cold, which I naturally blame you for. It's, it is a weird coincidence. I'll give you that. It's a weird coincidence that a week after I showed up with a terrible cold, you seem to have contracted a cold. But I'd like to see you're doing all the right things here. I see you got your mug of tea. Yep, drinking drinking some tea. Got to keep the uh, got to keep the golden tones lubed right. up for this uh, uh, episode of the show. See, I was hoping we'd make it at least five ten minutes in before somebody said lubed up on this episode of the podcast. Nope, lubed up. Gonna get that out there right right now. We haven't even. This isn't even the Tito Ortiz Chuck Liddell book club episode yet, and you're already for saying lubed up. I am lubed up, and I am ready to insert my thoughts. Oh God! See, I feel like you maybe. Do you need me to get you a quilt or something to to drape around your shoulders? Just put it over my knees, <laughs> okay. old man Frank Edgar style. Just drape it over my knees. Speaking of the book club episode next week. How's your reading coming along? Oh, I'm good. I'm doing well. Have you advanced out of Chuck Liddell's childhood yet? Oh, yeah. I'm through the uh, the college era now and, and into the, uh, let's call him the pit days. So he's not a champion yet? No, no. But Hackleman is on the scene. Okay. That's when business picks up, I guess. Also, uh, Ben, as very seldom happens on this show, we were ahead of the curve. As it was announced That's today right. that Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell have signed bout agreements to actually fight each other in the new Golden Boy MMA promotion. I think it might have been yesterday, but yes, you're right, that they are doing this thing again for a third time. So, I mean, the stakes are pretty high for the book club episode, especially, I don't know exactly what's going on over in Chuck Liddell's book, but Tito Ortiz's memoir, let's say he has some thoughts on Chuck Liddell, on their history together, on how Chuck Liddell went about his career. Let's say he might even have some... I don't want to say questionable, but interesting theories about what might have caused him to lose their two fights. Oh, I can't wait. You know, it is going to be interesting to compare notes yes. on that and other sus, uh, subjects when we record the book club. That's going down Friday the 13th, correct? That's right. So, uh, you know you know what? Some responses to the books from our listeners have started to roll in. But remember, if you want to participate in the book club, you can read either Tito Ortiz, This Is Gonna Hurt, that's right. Now, that's an ironic title, isn't it? I'm glad to that call... you used uh, ironic because there are several points, and I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'm saving up a lot of notes that I have for this book. There are several points when Tito Ortiz will refer to things as ironic that are just kind of weird, definitely not ironic. And you have to know, the guy who was the ghostwriter probably knew that that was incorrect and either either didn't know, let it slip by, or made a conscious decision in an attempt maybe to get into Tito Ortiz's voice. Capture, yeah, capture the man's voice. Still several things. Ironic. And you're like, nope, that's not irony. Uh, or you can read Chuck Liddell's autobiography, My Fighting Life. Is that what it's called? I mean, I'm reading Ice it. Iceman, My Iceman. Fighting Life. Yeah, I don't even know the damn title. Uh, or you can read both. 
Or so neither. Some shit-eating wild men are out there reading both. Or you could read neither. Send us your thoughts, and we'll be recording the special book club episode July the 13th, about a week and a half uh, from today. Remember, that one is for Patreons only, so you need to go to patreon.com slash event. Also, if you were to do that, you can get in on the Brunch of Champions this Friday. That's right. We're going to be uh, live streaming during the weigh-ins, correct, for, the, right. for UFC 226. We'll be talking about that night's Ultimate Fighter finale, which uh, the main event features somebody against Israel Adesanya. I don't know who the other person is off the top of my head. Brett but, uh, Tavares. Oh, I it's think. Tavares? I believe it is. Oh, all right. Uh, so we'll be talking about all that. We're going to have uh, scintillating thoughts, as we always do. So you won't want to miss it. What time are we doing that on Friday? Let's say 10 a.m. 10 a.m. here in the One True Time Zone? That's right. All right. And uh, we'll be live streaming that video of us. You can see us uh, in all our glory. Who knows what Chad will look like by then. Oh, God. Yeah. Hopefully I've recovered and not have retreated into even more sickness. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you in part by Fulton and Rourke. With summer back and once again open for business, we've been telling you guys about Fulton and Rourke's fine aftershave cloths. These individually packaged wipes are the perfect blend of fragrance and function. Like almost all the stuff that Fulton and Rourke makes, they're built to go everywhere you go. Drop a few in your gym bag or your backpack, or if you happen to be a traveling pro wrestler, tuck them in your fanny pack. And you can pull them out whenever you need to freshen up a bit. That's right, formulated with witch hazel, eucalyptus, and tea tree oil, the aftershave cloths, are for more than just shaving. They're the perfect way to refresh when, you know, jumping in the shower just isn't an option. Anytime, any place, quick wipe down with one of the aftershave claws gets you feeling 100% back in that game. The cooling and toning formula not only feels nice on your skin, Chad, it also helps remove dirt and oil so you can save yourself some blemishes later on. Don't merely take our word for it. Fulton Rourke's aftershave cloths just won a Men's Health Grooming Award for 2018's Best Aftershave. And just in case you're already a fan of Fulton Rourke's shampoo and body wash, the guys just decided it was time to go big, so they introduced a 33-ounce version. You want to get your hands on that? Go to FultonandRourke.com today and hook yourself up. As always, you can use the promo code CME for 15% off your first order. Ben, Dundasso shirts are back in stock right now for six days to celebrate CottonBureau.com's fifth birthday. How about that? I've only sold two so far. And they'll probably disappear and never be seen again. Well, this right now we're on trend to be this be the first time that we have not qualified to actually get our order printed and shipped to the people because you got to sell twelve before Cotton Bureau will go ahead and actually make the shirts. So, I mean, if that happens, if we come in under twelve, it'll be the first time for us. I think it will be a uh, a clear a clear indication that may, perhaps the Dundasso shirts have outlived their saleability. And then it's time for the CME to come up with some new shirts. That's what I'm implying. You know, somebody via the email sent in that we should make cowboy astronaut cigarette t-shirts, which is actually a pretty good idea. That actually Except is. Except you would have to probably cut Sir Nigel in. Nobody tells Sir Nigel about yeah. this conversation. <laughs> we just we just won't tell him about that. So uh, we'll see how these Dundasso shirts go off this time. And maybe it's, uh, it's going to be time to start brainstorming some new t-shirt ideas. Oh, I like that idea. I don't know. We got music this week from our friend The Fifth Element, a producer from Fort Worth, Texas. If you like what you hear, you can check him out on Twitter at The Fifth Element or Facebook.com slash The Fifth Element or over on SoundCloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. And as you know by now, that's the word the with an A. Ben, it's looking like it might start pouring rain. You know, it was I rode my bike over here in the rain, at least partially. So, hey, welcome to summer in Montana, my man. I can't wait for you to have to ride your bike all the way back to your house in the rain. No, I'm going to hang out here for a while. 
Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. Stipe! DC? Stipe! DC? In round number two, want to watch two insanely talented and insanely nice dudes with keen fashion senses and positive mental attitudes have a fight of the year candidate brawl where a world title is on the line? Then Max Holloway versus Brian Ortega is probably the fight for you. And in round number three, last week we tried to curse the UFC 226 undercard, and somehow it just got awesomer. So I guess we're saying we're going to try to do that again? And you're welcome? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Gavin Springett. He writes, thoughts on one half of the main event of UFC Hamburg being pulled three weeks out from the card and then be out on UFC 227. Does it just go to show a blatant disregard uh, for the fans and even more so for European fans as tickets have no doubt been on been sold on the strength of the main event? Now, of course, what Gavin is referring to here, Ben, uh, what they do, they put... Uh, Anthony Smith is in. Anthony Smith is in against Shogun Hua. Against at Shogun UFC Hua. Hamburg. Vulcan Uzdemir, he... the secret of the ooze, is, <laughs> is out. But he will be fighting... Alexander Gustafson. At Lusty UFC Gusty. 227. That's right. Yes. So a, a switcheroo, you might say. Yeah, and I mean, I can't disagree with Gavin Springett's assessment here that it is kind of a big fuck you to somebody who already bought tickets to UFC Hamburg. I guess... Again, it's like UFC goes to a market that doesn't usually go to, and they think, all right, you're buying tickets because you heard the UFC was coming to town. You don't really care who's showing up to fight. You're just going because it's the UFC, so it won't make a difference. We'll mess things around just to facilitate good fights on other fight cards where we're actually running a pay-per-view or something, and we actually feel like we need to make that money, and you'll take whatever you get, and you'll be happy about it, Hamburg. Do you think that there are uh, fans of Vulcan Uzdemir, the sweet O, uh, who people are, are were gonna they were gonna bring their secret of the ooze signs down to Hamburg and now they're not gonna show up because what's uh, the point now? Anthony Smith is gonna be in there looking looking like a looking like one of those computers on Star Trek synthesized an MMA fighter. Really? Because that's kind of what Vulcan Ozdemir looks like is like a creative fighter. Yeah, but uh, Anthony Smith is covered in tattoos, right? Okay. Just like just a terrifying beast of a man. So you're saying maybe you got to turn that. That ooze sign around and see what you can come up with on the back. Yeah, for Anthony Smith. Uh, one other thing that I saw Mark Raimondi tweeted out today, which may have been part of the thinking here, uh, is that Vulcan Uzdemir has to have his trial for. Uh, remember, he got Beating arrested a guy outside of bar in yeah, Florida, down there in Florida. So he's got to have his his assault trial around the same time. And while they're not expecting that to be like a protracted event, I think it's only going to take a a couple days. Maybe uh, matchmakers were concerned about him having international travel plans around yeah, the same as, time. as well you may be concerned in that situation. To me, this seems like the division that can least withstand some stuff like this. Like I tweeted about it before when I first heard the news, that it feels like the more you try to take one guy out and put somebody else in and move some people around, like some divisions, you can do that at lightweight all goddamn day. You can do it at featherweight, you can do it at welterweight. You start doing that shit at 205 pounds, and the Jenga tower is tilting, my man. It cannot withstand too much of this. Yeah, well, and Anthony Smith, wasn't he talking about uh, he would move up to heavyweight in in, uh, 
in order to to catch the, a fight on the upcoming card in his home state of Nebraska. So he was already willing to make some concessions, but instead uh, he's going to have to make sure that his passport is up to date because he's going to be heading over there to Germany. Hamburg's a lovely town. At least he's got that going for him. Co-main event on this fight card, Ben, Glover Tashira against Alir Latifi, the bricklayer. If you told me that, that Tashira and Alir Latifi had already fought like five or six times, I would, I would <laughs> totally believe yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Is that the first time for that for that matchup? Or I, seem, I mean, if you, it seems to me like those guys probably fight every weekend. No, they haven't fought before. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. If you told me either that they have fought several times before, like you could tell me this was a tetralogy fight and I would believe that. Or if you tell me that they've been training partners for years and they've only recently agreed to put that aside to fight just because there's nobody else left, I'd also believe that. Yeah, Glover Tashira and Alir Latifi could be the best of friends and training partners, or there could be like a decade-old blood feud between the two. That, and I would, I would just nod my head and say, yeah, that sounds right. Sounds right. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Andrew Millington. He writes, so congrats are in order for Don Cerrone, who just had his first child. My questions are these. Uh, mazel tov, by mazel the way. Tov. To the Cerrone, Out this Cerrone's. motherfucker. Uh, question one, do you think he's already asked his preferred skydiving pilot which baby Bjorn is certified for 15,000 feet? <laughs> nice. And question two, knowing what we know about Cowboy, does his frequency of fighting change at all? with his new circumstances, to, do, to discuss if you'd be so kind. That's an interesting question. Well, you know, as Andrew Millington, who I believe is a father of four, damn well knows, these babies ain't cheap. That's right. They're not free. They come with numerous strings attached. So now that Donald Cerrone is going to have to be paying for some diapers, I'm thinking we see him back in the cage maybe even more. Well, you never know how parenthood's going to affect somebody, right? Because on one hand, there's you got to get out there and make that money. Especially if you're Donald Cerrone and you know you you've already found enough things to spend your money on, and now you got to add a baby to that mix. Plus, as we also saw, sometimes people are like, mm, "I want to take some time off and spend some time with the baby," and then you spend like two weeks with the baby, and you realize that sucks, and uh, you want to get back to work as soon as possible just to get out of there. So that could also happen. Uh, but then, who knows? Maybe Donald Cerrone, as he blossoms into a father will feel like you know what i don't need to be out here just scrapping with whatever killer 27 year old the ufc throws at me i need to start thinking a little more seriously about the the old cowboy's future long term here because i got other people to think about so you're saying that that we could uh we could see a significant shift in the cowboy cerrone uh mindset the philosophy now nah, he's just gonna keep fighting all the time do we have a name? Do we have? Do we know what the, what the name is on this baby? I don't know. Because uh, I guarantee it's something awesome, right? <laughs> okay, let's 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 Google it and see what we can come up with. Uh, because, yeah, you, I don't know. I'm not I'm not seeing anything. But well, it looks like there's a male child because I'm seeing a picture here. You're saying his first child is a masculine child. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Uh, I don't see the name. I mean, it's got to be Hunter or Tracker. Tracker? Or, or uh, you know, something like that. If anybody knows the name of Donald Cerrone's child, I assume that they will... Uh... Um, okay. Oh, I just came... Oh, Daxon. Daxon. Wait a second. Daxon middle, Danger middle, Cerrone. Middle name Danger. Are you telling Danger me... Danger is his middle name, Ben. Donald Cerrone gave his child literally his middle name is Danger? I mean, I believe it. I believe it. So welcome to the world, Daxon Danger Cerrone. Wow, uh, that kid has got a... A name to live up to there. He kind of does. Like, 
kind of putting it, putting him on the spot there in a <laughs> yes. lot of ways. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Slick Williams. So he writes, so what are we to make of Johnny Hendricks now that he has called it a career? I remember getting in, introduced to him the day bef- uh, in the before times as the bearded guy who knocked out Amir Sadala and his hi- and his hype train. But slowly I came to love him and his aw shucks who me attitude. I think his crown jewel was the Cracker Jack Barnburner against Carlos Condit. Uh, and the fight he arguably won against GSP. His third act as a middleweight got sad, but isn't that just how the fight game works? Hopefully the steakhouse business is hot, and he can segue into something interesting and lucrative, like releasing a personal brand of luxury long-haul trucks. Uh, what's your guys' favorite memory of the big rig? Now, you know, that is an interesting question of like kind of what to make of his career, because I, I agree that that fight against GSP, where... A lot of people thought he won. Dana White turned red yelling about how he thought he won at the post-fight press conference. And then GSP stepped away after that. So that could have influenced how Dana White felt about the fight. You'll recall that was the one that ended with Dana White calling on the governor of Nevada to step in and fix the (laughs) athletic commission. Right, yeah. Yeah, That's how mad he was about that decision. Uh, And at the time, it looked like, well, there is a long, bright future ahead of Johnny Hendricks. Yeah, he looked like the... uh... The new man, right? The heir apparent. The yeah. Who's going to carry the 175-pound banner into the future. 170 pounds. 170, well, in Johnny Hendricks' case. <laughs> uh, and then he fought Robbie Lawler and won that decision in the first Robbie Lawler fight. Close fight. Good fight. Uh, became the champion. We thought, okay, now this Johnny Hendricks storyline can continue. And then he lost the title to Robbie Lawler in the rematch, another close fight. And then hard times. Hard times for your man, Big Rig. Yeah, it's hard to remember somebody who went from the penthouse to the outhouse in quite as dramatic fashion as Johnny Hendricks, where if you include that loss to George St. Pierre at UFC 167, which again was a split decision that a lot of people thought maybe he rightfully should have gotten the decision win there, uh, he ends up going, I believe, 3-7 and seven in his final 10 fights. And coming into that fight, he was 15-1. and one. So pretty dramatic shift there for Johnny Hendricks. Uh, And a guy that, you know, he gets TKO'd by Paulo Costa in his last fight in November at UFC 217, where it kind of feels like, okay, Johnny Hendricks is walking away at the right time. Like, uh, we know that he took some steps uh, to try to revitalize his career, moved up to middleweight, et cetera, et cetera. It didn't really work out for him. Now the man is retired at 34 years old. And it is interesting to try to speculate. We wonder what uh, what will become of Johnny Hendricks. I mean, uh, wrestling coach seems like the obvious way to go for Johnny Hendricks if he can find a way to do that that, that pays his bills because obviously he's a decorated collegiate wrestler. He's one of those guys that seems like his life was really wrapped up in his identity as a wrestler and a guy who could uh, you know, probably pretty easily transition to that sort of coaching. But uh, aside from that, I can't totally claim to know Johnny Hendricks well enough to like plot out a future for him. Yeah, as far as one of my favorite memories of him, I remember being at the fight where he knocked out John Fitch. And if you recall, I believe he knocked out John Fitch and Martin Campman both with like almost an identical punch. Like they both landed even like almost in the exact same spot early on in the fight. And I remember that one with, a, with against John Fitch because on paper that one looked like it could end up being a real grind. Like a long, tough fight for both guys. And then he goes out there, lands a big left hand, knocks him out, and he ran around the cage celebrating. And the look on his face was, holy shit, can you believe it? <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, okay, I could, I feel like I can empathize with what's going through that man's mind right now. That sense of like relief and also 
shock, but in a good way. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that one. Yeah, and I will probably always think of the George St. Pierre fight first. I think it's my lasting memory uh, of Johnny Hendricks. And again, like the kind of performance where even though he didn't get to the decision, you thought he was going to be a force and a factor in that division for a long time. I would like to think anyway that I will remember that Johnny Hendricks and not like the Johnny Hendricks uh, who once his, his weight cuts had seemingly sort of like gotten into his head. He started yeah. showing up like having real weird exchanges with the media and that, that one very strange sort of press conference, pre-fight press conference situation uh, with him. I, would, I guess I'm trying to say I would like to remember Johnny Hendricks for the good times. Okay. And, and maybe not the weirder times. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Tom Feely. Uh, he writes, so it looks like the only thing that's getting people excited in Bellator nowadays is tournaments. Do you think Bjorn Rebney regrets not coming up with that idea before he was fired? Except that he did. Yeah, hard to know if this is an ironical question. Yeah, or if it's just somebody who hasn't been following the sport for fucking ever like we have. Um, but yeah, that was the whole genesis of Bellator. Well, and I think, but I think, uh, ironical or not, that's why this is an interesting question because it is, uh, you know, somewhat funny to note that that Scott Coker has sort of tapped into this idea of these Bellator Grand Prix tournaments uh, with somewhat great success, like kind of generating excitement in, in whatever is going on in the heavyweight division and now with the welterweight Grand Prix on tap. And it, it is kind of interesting to think that in some ways that was Bellator's original business strategy. Yes. Although I think with like some important distinctions. Right. Well, and it's not too different from what you see going on just at a lot of places in a lot of ways around the combat sports world where everybody is trying to come up with something that's going to help you stand out so that you're not just the off-brand UFC right. like we've talked about before. And the tournament thing is a way to do that. And that's how it was for Bellator. It was like, remember, the whole pitch was where title shots are earned, not given. Like, we'll just set up these tournaments, and then if you win your fights, then you get there regardless of what the promoter or the fans or anybody else think about you. And it was supposed to be set up as a direct contrast to what was going on in the UFC and what continues to go on in the UFC. So it is different, though, now that now what Bellator is trying to do is let's see who we have that are marketable names, whether they're marketable names from 10 years ago or whether they're still relevant, and we throw them all in a tournament together. And who wins is kind of not even the point. It's a way just to get all your, your big names involved in something where the fact that it's a tournament lends some stakes to the bout. Like yeah. well, Each one seems to have a little more meaning because it determines who, who ends up in the next fight. The big difference between the Scott Coker tournament and the Bjorn Rebney tournament is fun, right? Like even the way that it was sort of marketed back when Bjorn was in charge was that the, you know, the Bellator tournament was the toughest tournament in sports and it was the place where title shots were earned and not given and it was very hard-nosed and all this stuff, which I think is like, I don't know that you can necessarily fault them for coming up with that advertising strategy. It seems like an obvious way to go. And yet, it also sort of highlights how important execution is you know, in delivering a successful product to the fans because you've got these two tournament formats uh, and for for whatever reason, right now in the 2018 version of mixed martial arts, like Scott Coker's more fun kind of uh, you know toss out a lot of your expectations, throw caution to the wind sort of uh, philosophy feels a lot more interesting for whatever reason than and you know a big part of it also is that you've got known names in the tournament, whereas like Bellator, the previous iteration of Bellator was trying to use those tournaments to make names, and for whatever reason, it just seems like the Scott Coker approach at least so far, has been a lot more effective. Yeah. And maybe with Bellator, the other problem was that, like, 
it was kind of hard to keep track of because it just seemed like they always had like some damn tournament or another going on. Yeah, it was just like every Friday night, a tournament uh, in one weight class or another. And yeah, it was hard to keep. But I mean, it also spoke to like what was going on in different eras that maybe a little less focused on fun um, because it was trying to be the, hey, we're the real sport alternative to the UFCs. Everybody look at the circus and what's going on just having fun. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Austin Shippey. He writes, after Dana White's Tuesday night contender series and a fair buzz, I resumed watching older events with, uh, UFC 145 Jones versus Evans, uh, with Mr. Sugar's reportedly recent announcement, retirement announcement. I was taken aback trying to think of the most successful tough fighter with how relatively new MMA is. How do you judge success wins, longevity, legacy, money, etc." So wait, is this, is this question Austin Shippey telling us about getting drunk on a Tuesday night? Staying up all night watching Fight Pass? I think we read between the lines, yeah. <laughs> okay. And also, if you just read the lines, yeah. since there are some, some words missing here, uh, <laughs> it seems like maybe that's that's the... I'm not hating on that approach. No, I, heaven forbid this show would do that. Uh, <laughs> who's the most successful Ultimate Fighter fighter? Because, I mean, Rashad Evans is up there. He definitely is. Right? Uh, but then you, I think you got to think of people like TJ Dillashaw, who didn't even win the thing. No, but he doesn't now, count. He didn't win. So it's only winners, not necessarily like the Chris Liebens of the world would not be considered. Oh, he does say most successful tough fighter. Sorry. Okay, but first, you do have to answer that question. How do you define success in MMA? Because it doesn't seem like wins and like, did you get to a title? I mean, that seems like an important factor, but it doesn't seem like it tells the whole story. Yeah, and I mean, like that's the big question, right? Because if you if you consider things like, you know, money earned, then you might come up with an all-time list of mixed martial arts fighters that where Conor McGregor is number one, which I think is a thing we've seen before on the internet. I think people have done that. But like if, if you make a list that is, that is just about, you know, the, the more strictly purely sport sporting aspects of, of the sport where wins legacy longevity count, then like you arguably wouldn't include a guy like that at all. So like, it's kind of the crux of any, Big picture greatness argument in mixed martial arts, I think, starts with that question. Yeah. I think that the question of did you win a major title or not, that has to be under consideration. But also there are some people where it seems like, you know, whether they won a title or not, you give you have to give them the credit for being able to find the niche in which they were successful, like financially and as becoming like a known fighter who people cared about. Like somebody like Chael Sonnen where never won a major title, and yet it's hard to say, like, as far as, like, what other fighters aspire to do, that they wouldn't look at Chael Sonnen and be like, that's a career I would like to emulate sure. in some way or another. So I think that, it, like, there's almost a way where watching MMA fighters sometimes, their careers feel like a good heist movie, and that you kind of want to see them get away. You want to see them get away with the money in the end. <laughs> and that says something about the nature of this career. Right. But like the, at least that's how I feel. But the same way I feel about when I see somebody retire when it's time, and I think like, oh, good, good for you, yeah. you know. And so I do think like how much money you're able to earn, or like how if you're able to like make the system work in your favor rather than letting it just completely screw you at every turn right. all through your athletic prime, which we've seen, you know, way more often. I think. Yeah. Well, and just by way of example, think if you were trying to make a list of like the greatest MMA heavyweights of all time. It's like, where do you even go with that list uh, when trying to consider, again, just by way of example, somebody like Brock Lesnar, 
who essentially has a short MMA career, wins the UFC heavyweight championship, feels in some ways like he just had a cup of coffee at the top and then diverticulitis and perhaps uh, the more rounded skill sets of his opponents caught up with him, but now is a guy who continues to sort of flirt with the sport and come back every so often for a paycheck and to have like a one-off quote-unquote super fight, attraction fight style thing. Like how would you, where would you even rank him in terms of all-time greats? Uh, Because if you're going to include money, like obviously he's one of the biggest UFC draws of all time. But if you're going off, you know, legacy wins, stuff like that, like I don't know that Brock deserves to be that high. Well, and if you're going to talk about money earned and like popularity gained as far as tough fighters, then is Kimbo Slice the the most successful tough fighter of all time? Wow. You kind of just blew my mind. Yeah. Sit with that for a moment. Wow. Put that in your tea and sip it. I still remember how Kimbo Slice was like the surprise entrant on Tough 10 when it was all heavyweights. And like every single person in the house immediately wanted to fight him. <laughs> yes. Because the dudes there knew the score. Yes, they, they did. knew what was up, even if the like marketing effort for that season of The Ultimate Fighter didn't necessarily tip its cap. Yeah. And I'll never forget Kimbo Slice's enemy, inner me monologue where he realized that maybe who he had been fighting against all along was himself. That's deep, man. Anyway, that's going to do it for Listener Mail. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, well, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. In the world, according to Chad, Uh it is hard to think of a better, more interesting, or frankly, more exciting matchup coming out of the current and available UFC roster than Stipe Miocic versus Daniel Cormier. And for a lot of reasons that I hope are obvious to the people listening to this podcast, not only do you have, in my view, a bona fide super fight featuring the heavyweight champion against the light heavyweight champion, you have two really really interesting athletes just in terms of of matchup and skill set against skill set uh and you you know you have an undefeated former heavyweight in daniel cormier moving back into the division where he never tasted defeat as he says uh this week on embedded even in wrestling he was never really defeated in the heavyweight division so he has always won when he fought you know at the highest weight available to him but i wonder is it going to be a super fight at the box office because clearly you have Stipe Miocic, who is like, you know, the, the most successful UFC heavyweight champion of all time, athletically in the cage, but a guy who has, hasn't really connected all that much with fans, uh, and a guy who is in many ways a puzzle to try to figure out, you know, why that is or why he personally has sort of 
insisted on that being the case. And then you got Daniel Cormier, who I think is a guy who, who is really quite popular among the fan base, but a guy who, at least for a brief time, uh, has been booed in the wake of losing twice to John Jones, but still, you know, one way or another, winding up with that 205-pound title around his waist. So what do you think? Is this a, a, a blockbuster fight card at UFC 226? Is this going to produce a huge buy rate? Or uh, is, just, is this just one where we in the bubble are super excited for the, the actual fight at the top of this card? Well, if you are paying attention to MMA and care at all about fighting. I don't see how you can look at this fight card and not feel like, okay, I got to I got to be home for this one or I got to be somewhere with a TV for this one because not only, you know, this heavyweight main event, we'll talk a little bit more about the the featherweight title fight after that. And you got Francis Ngannou, Derek Lewis. I mean, you got like a good lineup here. If you're ever going to buy a UFC pay-per-view, why on earth wouldn't you buy this one? And yet, will it reach out beyond the bubble? It seems tougher and tougher for anything to do that for the UFC these days. If it's if it doesn't have Conor McGregor or some other, you know, more mainstream type superstar attached to it. So no, I don't think this does a huge buy rate. But I also think the UFC needs to kind of expect a new normal in terms of buy rates if you don't have one of those superstars on it. Like if you can do half a million at this point with a fight card like this then i guess you should be kind of happy with that whereas before it would you would be looking at throwing together two title fights including a heavyweight light heavyweight super fight and you'd be talking about breaking one million whereas these days that just doesn't feel as possible yeah uh and you're right though that part of it is that stipe try as we might to get some heavyweight superstar traction for stipe he's not making it any easier for anybody like, did you see him on the, the Rich Eisen show? I did not. There's a clip that I, I watched today, and it's like, to his credit, Rich Eisen does a good job as an interviewer of coaxing Stipe out. But man, it, Stipe feels like he's battling him at times to avoid doing that. Like, it, it almost feels like Stipe has internalized this story about he's the guy who doesn't talk trash and even if that's boring and we don't like it, but Hey, he's still going to go in there and win. So everybody just has to shut up about it and deal with it. And it almost feels like he's doing it on purpose now, like just out of spite, yeah. like, Hey, all right, you guys love the trash talk so much. I'm not going to do it. I'm, I'm barely even going to speak English in an intelligible manner. And I'm a native fucking speaker. And still, what can you do about it? Cause I keep going in there and winning the fights. Which is the thing that we used to complain about at heavyweight, right? That nobody could hold on to that title. Now Stipe is the guy, and it feels like he's not quite the guy we hoped would come along. Which I think is strange because I, I argued early on in his UFC career that he was a person that the UFC could make something out of. And it seemed, you know, like his his story of still being a like a working firefighter would be so easy. Like if, for a company that will always take the easy story, it seems like it would be so easy uh, like to put him out on a number of media tours, like as this guy who's like an EMT and a firefighter and is also maybe the greatest UFC heavyweight champion of all time. Uh, but for whatever reason, it does seem like his personality has thwarted that. If like a real full-throated effort to prop him up as that was ever made. Uh, but I remember like uh, my colleague Scott Harris from Bleacher Report went and, and like hung out with him in Cleveland at the firehouse and like wrote a, a good feature about Steve Miocic. And it was, you know, it made Steve Miocic seem super uh, engaging in some ways. And like all his buddies at the firehouse kind of cracking on him and just treating him like another firefighter and not the UFC heavyweight champion. Uh, but, but like that kind of coverage has been few and far between. 
And for Miocic himself, it seems like by design. Yeah, well, when you look at a fight like this one, though, where this is exactly the kind of shit we've been asking for, right? Heavyweight champ versus light heavyweight champ. And granted, there are some asterisks to throw around here when you do this. Because, yeah, Daniel Cormier technically only lost once in the UFC because of the no contest in the last fight against John Jones. Is, again, technically the champion because of the no contest in the fight with John Jones. And yet we all can't pretend like we didn't see that shit. We all saw what happened there. We all remember him ended up face down on the mat. And even the people who want to be total dicks about John Jones and take away his accomplishments, it seems like even they can't get themselves to fully believe that it was steroids that went out there and beat Daniel Cormier. And so now it feels like, again, the sort of Twilight Zone wish fulfillment that MMA fans sometimes get, where we're getting the 205-pound versus heavyweight champion crossover thing we wanted, but not quite how we wanted it. Yeah, in some ways it feels like a setup for what happens next, right? Because the winner of this fight may end up fighting Brock Lesnar and or the winner of this fight may end up fighting John Jones if, you know, he is turned loose by USADA, if USADA cuts him loose. Uh I think people are super interested in the idea of John Jones, you know, going up to heavyweight to fight either Daniel Cormier or Steve Miocic. Uh and the same obviously is is true of Brock Lesnar and then of course you have the diamond, the ultimate prize a potential Brock Lesnar versus John Jones fight, all of that kind of still out there in the ether, depending on who wins this one. But like to me, that feels like to shortchange this matchup a little bit because I'm not only interested in this fight because the winner may get to fight John Jones or may get to fight Brock Lesnar. I'm interested in this fight because, as I said, Daniel Cormier was an undefeated heavyweight, beat some big names, beat Josh Barnett, beat Bigfoot Silva, beat Frank Mir, beat Roy Nelson was a really good heavyweight and kind of moved down to light heavyweight because he didn't want to fight his buddy Cain Velasquez at some point. And was, again, a really good light heavyweight. He's only been beat by one guy who's arguably the greatest MMA fighter of all time in John Jones. So, like, when you think about Steve Amiochish, who's six four, 240 pounds, against Daniel Cormier, who's 5'11", will probably be somewhere around two between 225 and 240 for this fight. Like, as a guy who just likes mixed martial arts, it's hard for me to think of a more interesting matchup for this one because of what I, I hope are all those obvious reasons. Yeah. Well, let's see this one. I was writing a little bit about it earlier and thinking about, you know, Stipe kind of doing the Rodney Dangerfield get no respect thing. And even though he's like a two and a half to one favorite, which makes sense to me that he would be the favorite here because on paper, Stipe, he's bigger, younger, stronger, has more avenues to victory. He could go out there, land one big punch, it seems, and knock Daniel Cormier out. Whereas it seems to me like Daniel Cormier has to grind one out, doesn't he? I mean, it's hard to see Daniel Cormier winning inside the distance here for me. I I mean... You're saying one big shot, anybody can go down in heavyweight? Yeah, I mean, well, I'm sure. gonna, I mean, I'm going to say, like, my, my brain says you're right, but my heart says Daniel Cormier can clip him. Like, and in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens in this fight. This... Like, seems to me, like, for one thing, I won't be surprised one whit if Daniel Cormier just fucking flat out wins this. Because he's, he's Daniel Cormier. He's, he's the underdog here for a good reason, but like, if you end up putting the heavyweight title on Daniel Cormier at the end of this fight, I won't be surprised. But it also feels to me like the kind of fight where Steve Miocic gets clipped early by a punch by Daniel Cormier, but that Cormier doesn't finish him, and Steve comes back and kind of like, you know, ends up either grinding out a decision or wins a TKO or KO 
on his own. But like to me, it's just like a super interesting matchup because I kind of have no idea. If it turns out Steve Miocic is just too big and too good a striker and like a competent enough wrestler to keep Cormier off him and he just like wins a, a, a wipeout unanimous decision i won't be that surprised and if cormier fucking body slams him like he did to josh barnett and ends up winning by submission or knockout or, or however like i also will be like huh yeah that makes sense daniel cormier is really good now see though if stipe wins then it's another you know brick in the wall kind of for stipe it's again he's the most dominant ufc heavyweight champion uh there will be people be like okay you beat a smaller guy so whatever but still, it will be one more in the legacy of Stipe as the greatest UFC heavyweight champion, if not the greatest MMA heavyweight of all time, uh, even if he's not exactly like swaggering to the extent to really draw enough attention to it. But if Daniel Cormier wins, then he instantly becomes one of the greatest fighters of all time. Like, yeah, there's there's way more that can turn on Daniel Cormier winning this fight than there is for Stipe winning this fight. Because he if he wins it, then shit, man. He's the guy who got into MMA late in life, became strike force heavyweight champion, moved down, became UFC light heavyweight champion, went up, became UFC heavyweight champion against the most dominant heavyweight champion that the UFC had ever had. You could kind of wipe out, at least to an extent, what had been the previous narrative, which was Daniel Cormier was the bridesmaid to John Jones, and there's nothing he could do about it. Yeah. It wipes out a lot of that. Doesn't wipe it out, but it like uh, it it answers a lot of those previous losses to John Jones. It like it changes the narrative around Daniel Cormier's entire career and how we will remember him once he retires. And it feels like a, it would be a huge like personal watermark moment, watershed moment for Daniel Cormier, whose entire athletic career has kind of been based around not being able to win the major championship. If he beats Stipe Miocic and becomes UFC heavyweight champion, I got to believe that that would mean a great, great deal to him uh, just in terms of like his, his athletic legacy. Uh, and you're right. Like it, it, it makes, it makes for a better story and it like makes uh, all things possible for everyone involved in that heavyweight or light, light heavyweight weight class. Uh, and, you know, we just have to see if, if, if he's up for it or if Stipe Miocic uh, once again just proves that he's, he's like, too good and then becomes the B-side in the Brock Lesnar fight. I don't know. It's depressing to me how the potential big money fight against Brock Lesnar is kind of the carrot dangling at the end of this. Yeah, it shortchanges this fight in a lot of ways, I think. Well, but not even – I mean, because you can argue the same thing about, like, John Jones. I know that one is legit. That one you can get me excited about, even though it also does shortchange the fight to be like, okay, this is about what could happen next instead of about what's actually going to happen. But John Jones, again, one of the greatest fighters of all time, if not the greatest fighter MMA has ever had. Brock Lesnar, on the other hand, that one feels like that's just everybody looking at the potential receipts you could yeah. count up afterwards. Yeah. Bums me out a little bit. I think that Brock Lesnar, who came back from wrestling, won a decision over Mark Hunt, failed two different steroid tests, tried to blame it on some goddamn foot cream, and then admitted, ah, shit, no, I was juicing, uh, and then just ran back to wrestling without having to worry about any of the suspension stuff. And now, just because everybody is thinking about all the money you can make, is like, well, hey, he could just jump right back into a heavyweight title fight, just be and we'll all agree to it because everybody wants to stay friends and make money. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we will move on to round number two. Ben, I'll, I'll do my Are You Fucking Kidding Me because it, it could serve as a lead-in to round number two. Have you seen the first episode of Embedded, UFC I, Embedded for I UFC 226? Are you fucking kidding me? I didn't know that there was a way for Brian Ortega to become more of my guy than he already was. 
But this dude is out here playing La Bamba on acoustic guitar and singing in the parking lot. Brian Ortega, my man. Are you fucking kidding? Not too bad either. Really? Yeah, pretty good. And then he puts the guitar down and he says, I stole my first guitar when I was 17. And I was just like, my guy, Brian Ortega, are you fucking kidding me? Did you get, have you bought the domain name yet? You bought the website? <laughs> I'm going to buy the album when it comes out. I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, my are you fucking kidding me, Chad? Did you see that when there was all this talk about where's LeBron James going to go? The UFC tried to jump into that kind of current events conversation with a Photoshop picture of LeBron James standing in the octagon with a UFC title around his waist. Yeah. Yep. And then the replies. They let you know that MMA fans, they're, they're a certain type of bunch because the replies were one of two types. The the slight minority of them were saying like, oh, I don't think LeBron James could actually make it as an MMA fighter or I think he totally could make it as an MMA fighter. But the majority of them were, what the fuck are you thinking that LeBron James would want to take a 95% pay cut to come in here and get brain trauma or – Hey, yeah, I bet LeBron James would really be stoked about that $2,500 in Reebok pay. Or why are you even acting like you would pay LeBron James? You would find a way to try to screw him too. <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? You didn't think that one through, UFC social media team. Because people let you have it on that one. Rightly so. Are you fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? That's going to do it for round number one. We will be right back. Round number two. not to get overshadowed when you have a genuine super fight at the top of a fight card. However, in the co-main event on this one, you have yourself a featherweight crackerjack. Max Holloway, who has not only become the champ, but really blossomed into being the guy. The the guy with the fancy clothes, the, the shiny ties. The guy who really is living that champ life after becoming the 145-pound champion and feeling just dominant in the role. And now he's taken on a young, gifted, dangerous, perhaps a little bit too soon, a challenger in Brian Ortega that at least offers us some interesting questions here. Now, this one, it's kind of like I respect the UFC for loading up this July 4th weekend fight card because this is the kind where normally they would save this one and split it into two pay-per-views because I would pay 60 bucks just to see this fight. Yeah, uh, as much as I like Steve Miocic versus Daniel Cormier, it's hard for me to say that I don't like Max Holloway versus Brian Ortega just as much. Uh, and the thing that is super interesting to me about this fight, uh, above and beyond the, the the mashup of styles and the sort of conflicting styles that you're going to get here uh, in in a striker like Max Holloway taking on like a real pure jujitsu ace like Brian Ortega, like the winner of this fight. Obviously, neither one of these guys is going to be Conor McGregor, but the winner of this fight is in real good position to sort of be the UFC's hot young star, uh, at least within the, the MMA bubble. You've got two guys that I think are both pretty marketable uh, and, and two guys that seem to kind of get it in terms of how to present themselves in the modern UFC. 
So the the person that emerges from this as the men's 145 pound champion, I think, will be in in a really good in really good shape. Let's say uh, moving forward with this company. And that said, you know, you stack up that all that sort of outside the cage stuff. Man, what an interesting matchup of styles here to put Max Holloway out there against Brian Ortega. Yeah, and now the thing with Max Holloway is that he went through just kind of every contender you could think of getting to the belt and then basically just beat Jose Aldo twice. Feels like he was up for just about absolutely anything else. He was willing to step in there at a fight at the lightweight title against Khabib Nurmagomedov. That didn't work out. Now he's back to defend this, this featherweight belt. And yet it also seems like he has kind of anointed himself as like, hey, I'm the, the featherweight champion for real here to stay. It's going to be a long time for all you motherfuckers trying to get this belt. Even though, you know, his only defense really has been, uh, if you don't count the, the interim stuff, his only defense has been to the, against the same guy twice. And that guy who kind of, the narrative on him now is that Jose Aldo hit a point and is on the downslope of his career. And so when you see him go up against a guy like Brian Ortega, it does feel like a good test to see like, all right, are you still the guy at the very top who can fend off these up-and-comers, somebody like Brian Ortega. But then the interesting thing for me about Ortega is how we keep saying, like, you know what, he's, he's too limited. He's, he, you know, he, he, he has this, the submission game that he somehow keeps getting on people even when they, they get to uh, like a good sense of what's coming. Then he goes out there and he knocks out Frankie Edgar, and you suddenly start thinking, well, this guy is 14-0 and 0 and still getting better, still maybe adding stuff to the toolbox, maybe we we haven't seen the final product of him yet. Yeah, Ortega is one of these guys who is at least uh, a good enough athlete that he makes leaps and bounds in, in the areas where he's still improving between fights, right? So he shows up to fight Frankie Edgar at UFC 222, uh, maybe just looking more dangerous on the feet than we, than we uh, had given him credit for. Because, you know, at least previous to the Cub Swanson fight in December of last year, uh, Ortega had looked like a guy who's like big, really big for this weight class, kind of a tall, very long fighter. He had really tight stand-up, which I mean as a compliment. Like, he threw really straight punches uh, and appeared to be fairly technically sound in terms of, like, uh, sticking to the bread and butter, like uh, throwing one-two combinations and stuff like that. But he didn't look like an overwhelming striker. Uh, And then he catches Frank Yeager with that elbow, like step-in inside elbow that was just nasty. Uh, And at least it leaves the impression that he had like remade himself in the stand-up game in between fights in a way that you know none of us were prepared for, and that frankly makes it interesting to see what he can do against Max Holloway because Ortega had previous to like knocking out Frankie Edgar, Ortega had been a guy who like would mess around with you on the feet and then would just end the fight whenever he wanted, if it went to the ground or if he even just got his damn hands on you. But it seems like Max Holloway has such a full complement of everything that you want in a mixed martial arts fighter at this point. I mean, if you're in Brian Ortega's corner, and like let's say there's a situation where Brian Ortega is like, okay, one of my coaches couldn't make it. I need my webmaster, uh, Chad Dundas, who runs uh, Brian Ortega is your guy.tv, to come in here, work my corner. And you know what? Let's see what he thinks. We, we left the game plan in the seat pocket at the, in the airplane. We had it all written down in note cards. We stuck it in there while we were picking up the Sky Mall. We forgot to get it out. Now we need a new game plan. What should I do with Chad? What should I do with this guy, Max Holloway? Oh, I'm I'm absolutely going to be Joe Warren over there in that corner. Put your hands on him? Yelling, grab a hold of him, Brian. 
Get your hands on him. Roughneck him, even? Yeah, roughneck him, Brian. Well, I assume, like, you just grab him and choke him out, right? Like, that's the game plan. <laughs> if you're Brian Ortega. <laughs> yeah? That's it, huh? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I think uh, Max Holloway is, is the favorite here, I assume, without actually looking at the uh, the odds. But I, he should be the favorite, and a favorite for a, a reason. And I think you just well articulated that reason that he, at least on paper, would seem to have the better, more all-around MMA game. Uh, but Brian Ortega is nasty, dude. And, you know, as his string of submission wins earlier in his UFC career can attest... Uh, he's one of these guys with this sort of like new, new next generation Brazilian jiu-jitsu skills where he's good enough to catch you in something, even though you know what he's doing and usually nobody can catch you in that thing. How about this? How about if you're in his corner and the game plan is grab him and choke him out, but what you do to throw Max Holloway off is you yell, Hey, don't, don't grab him and choke him out. And then Max Holloway is like, what? I was expecting so the opposite. about reverse psychology. Yeah, and then okay. like while he's standing there befuddled, boom, guillotine. What do you uh, think? You know, it's interesting to see a guy like Henner Gracie, who appears to have a, a really unique and good relationship with Brian Ortega, and from what I've seen, is a really good corner man also. But it's interesting to see him on this in, episode of Embedded that I watched, uh, putting a little spin on Brian Ortega's four consecutive third round finishes where there were several of those, as you'll recall, where the rest of the world was like, Oh, Brian Ortega was about to lose that fight and then snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Hannah Gracie is out here saying, it just takes Brian Ortega a while to get comfortable. He gets more comfortable as the fight goes on. So you hope you don't see him in the championship rounds. Cause at that point he's going to be firing on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. Just okay. a little bit of uh you know, Henry Gracie, who appears to be one of these guys that's like weirdly, like kind of freaky articulate when he talks, uh, he just put a little, we're not in the no spin zone, let's say that. He's putting a little hometown spin on those, on those victories. Shocking. Shocking to me coming from the Gracie family. Does that, does, are you worried at all? Like, this is the thing that I'm about to say is unfair, but like oh, Brian, or, Brian, Brian Ortega getting those third round wins when, you know, in fights where it looked like he was about to be outpointed. And then having this sort of like laid back persona where, like I said earlier, he's in the parking lot playing acoustic guitar and he's going surfing and all this stuff. Does it work? Are you worried that he's not going to be prepared for this? Well, yeah, but I'm not worried about it because of the laid back persona. I'm, I would be more worried about it just because this is always a big step up to go to you know, fighting for the title and fighting a guy who really feels like he is right there in the prime of his career and Max Holloway, who's like actually like slightly younger than Brian Ortega. You forget because it feels like Max Holloway has been fighting fucking forever, uh, but he's like a year younger than Brian Ortega. But he does feel like the more established fighter who has grown into the fighter that he is going to become, where it feels like Brian Ortega, you're still waiting to see him grow all the way into that fighter. And so it is like always a tough thing to, you know, he's been in big main events a couple times before, but even that is still kind of, getting to be a new thing for him whereas max holloway already there already the champion and has that kind of champion's confidence but it's not like hey if brian ortega could just be more tense and have less fun outside the octagon i would be less concerned about it the featherweight division is in a pretty weird place right now you got these two guys on top and then you have a lot of you know really uh known well-known names 
right behind them and Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar, Jeremy Stevens, Cub Swanson. And then you got kind of like the Mirsad Bektik, uh, Hanato Moikano, Zabit Mag- Mag- Magomed Sharapov. Nailed it. Uh, right, you know, kind of clustered back there. But none of those guys feels like they're about to vault into a championship fight. So what do you do with the winner here? Like clearly uh, Conor McGregor's not coming back to 145. He may not be coming back to the octagon at all for all we know at this point. If you win this fight, what's your next move? Man, I don't know. But it is interesting because as far as talent, it's not like there's a lack of any of that going on at featherweight. Featherweight's for a while now, it's kind of been the new lightweight in that sense, that you've got a ton of good fighters there to choose from. It's just trying to to make a fight for anybody with like a known name against the champion. You know, I kind of like Max Holloway's approach in that, like, they're all cupcakes and he's going to eat them all, that kind of thing, because that's what it feels like. It feels like you've got a whole lot of people who are all about as good as each other, and the ones who have names, it's because of who they used to be, like Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar, Cub Swanson. Uh, and then you got the guys coming up who, there's some super tough guys in there, like Zabit Magomed Sharapov. That's one, and that's one that not a whole lot of people seem to want that fight. And so it seems like there's a, a future there, but it does seem like there's going to be an intermediate period of getting to that where you, you have to get people to appreciate just what you'd be looking at. Yeah, I don't know what you do. Well, like if Max Holloway wins this, is it worth like saying you're going to go up to lightweight to fight, you know, the Conor McGregor's, Tony Ferguson's, Habib Nurmagomedov's of the world? Like as a gambit, it seems almost worth it. But if you're Brian Ortega and you win, like it's kind of like a whole new world for featherweight at that point because yeah. there's still a lot of dudes on this list that he hasn't fought. If I'm Max Holloway and I win this fight, I threaten to come find Conor McGregor anywhere on planet Earth that he may go. Yeah. You're out there on a yacht. I'm gonna be rowing up in a rowboat, ready to to get this one back. Yeah. That that would be my approach by Max Holloway. Yeah, that's the right approach if you're Max Holloway. Anyway, that's gonna do it for round number two. We will be right back. With round number three. On last week's show, I asked you if you could only watch the Fight Pass and or Fox Sports 1 preliminaries to UFC 226, which fight would you mark down as the stone-cold lead pipe lock can't miss fight of the century? Yeah. And you dove straight for Yancey Medeiros versus Mike Perry at welterweight on the Fox Sports 1 portion of the card. So naturally, this week, in between shows... Yancey Medeiros went out there and fucked his ribs up and got yanked off the card. That's on me. I'll take responsibility for that. I one. mean, it kind of it kind of felt like you drew a set of directions for the MMA gods. Yep. And they went out there and complied with what they do. You know what I should have done? What's that? Said Curtis Millinder, Max Griffin. See, you lose that one, and nobody's nobody's sitting around going like, hey. You ruined my whole goddamn weekend. Thanks a lot. Do they even notice? Maybe not. It makes me wonder if we should even talk about the silver lining. 
here at risk of, of, of like putting this fight in jeopardy. I'll not live in fear of the gods. But the ballad of Paul Felder is just hard to ignore here. Uh, he wanted to, he wanted to step into a different fight, right? He wanted to, uh, to step into the role that James Vick, uh, well, no, he was supposed to fight James. Okay, Vick. yes, he's going to fight James Vick, and, and then Boise. James Vick got pulled out. Yeah, well, James Vick got pulled out uh, to go to the Nebraska card, right? Is that the one? Sure. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, and then it, for a while, though, the thing was it looked like Paul Felder was just going to get screwed here, right? Like, uh, in, like where it was like, okay, he he was the one who got screwed at the last one where. We were looking for a last-minute opponent for Khabib Nurmagomedov, and Paul Felder said he would do it. But then, supposedly, and we could never get a really reliable story out of this, maybe the New York Athletic Commission was like, no, Paul Felder is not ranked highly enough uh, to to fill in for that fight, so he couldn't do it. So Ally Aquinta got that one instead, but Paul Felder was supposed to fight Ally Aquinta, so he just... He was screwed. He was out of a fight there. So then it looked like the same thing is going to happen to him. And who deserves it less than Paul Felder, who is on a good little winning streak, finishing people, doing a hell of a job as a commentator. There's a lot you could do with Paul Felder, and so it looked like he was going to get absolutely screwed. Credit to him, though, because he, instead of sitting around whining about his bad luck, saw an opportunity here, said like, okay, short notice fight, step up at welterweight, then I won't have to worry about the weight cut. Uh, go in there against Mike Perry, a guy who style-wise might be a little bit more advantageous to you if you have to go up a division. Paul Felder said, sure, people will pay attention to that one. And so now he's fighting Mike Perry in one that's kind of like a secretly banger of a fight. Right. Uh, James Vick going to step in against Justin Gaethje at fight night 135 after Al Iaquinta. That's right. Ray Janelle wouldn't do that. Wouldn't, wouldn't do it. Uh, so, yeah, like, did we fuck around and fall bass backwards into a better fight? Is Paul Felder versus Mike Perry better than Yancey Medeiros versus Mike Perry? Or are you going to call it a push? Or is it not as interesting? Uh, yeah, it's it is interesting, but it's also I I do feel a little weird about it that it's basically it seemed like Paul Felder had to come up with an idea like this one just so he didn't get screwed out of making some money after his whole training camp, and he does have to go up and wait, mm -hmm. and on a a shorter timeline than he had envisioned against the guy who was, had been training for this exact time, so. He does seem to be giving up some advantages there. However, we've talked before about Mike Perry and how Mike Perry is a fun guy to watch, but also a guy who, if you follow the game plan, you follow the blueprint that other people have set out, a beatable guy. Paul Felder, a smart fighter, but also a guy who, who likes violent finishes himself. How do you approach this one if you're Paul Felder? Do you go in there thinking... You know what? Just put on a show, let the chips fall where they may, because then you end up maybe wading right into a Mike Perry kind of fight against a bigger opponent who probably has a power advantage when the, the gloves start, start slanging that heavy leather. Or do you think like, all right, people have shown me how to beat Mike Perry. I'm a smart enough, savvy enough fighter that I can do that. It's a safer route to victory for me, and so I'll do it that way. Yeah, it's certainly a, a, an equation to weigh, right, if you're Paul Felder, because Alan Joban and Santiago Ponzanibio and Max Griffin have arguably painted you a picture about what to do against Mike Perry. And frankly, uh, painted you a picture that Mike Perry has seemed either disinterested or unable to 
uh, counteract. No, my period is the classic kind of old school MMA thing of treating it like it's bullshit when other people attack his weaknesses. Yeah. Like that's kind of like it's kind of cheap of them Which, to do let, that. Let's just go ahead and say Tank Abbott style, <laughs> yes. right? Because that was always the knock uh, that David Tank Abbott would put on people that they weren't going to stand in the middle of the cage and bang with him like like a man would do to you know, <laughs> take him down and submit him like some kind of cheater. Well, and I mean, it's not like Paul Felder is totally equipped to go out there and exploit all Mike Perry's weaknesses just because of the style of fighter that he is. Right. The thing that I wonder about is if you're Paul Felder, do you just go out there with your focus being on, I never want to let Mike Perry get set in front of me, yeah. get set enough to start throwing some some hard shots? Do I want to be constantly on the move, constantly making him uh, search to find me and then readjust once he's found me? Meanwhile, I'm chipping away at him. Like, do you think that you can go out there and finish Mike Perry? Because that's been kind of Paul Felder's thing of late. Or do you think I gotta, I gotta be careful here and beat him in stages rather than trying to go out there and put him away all at once? Cause all it takes is for Mike Perry to land one big right hand on you and suddenly you're in trouble. Right. Well, the smart thing for Paul Felder to do is kind of like try to out quick and out point Mike Perry, like you just said, and, you know, ultimately win a decision if that's what you're, what you're trying to do, just because that's, those are the ways that we have seen Mike Perry get beaten already in his UFC career. But then again, you know, I wonder, I think like the, uh, I think what's at stake here for Paul Felder is different than it would be in a, in a, another situation because, uh, historically we would say Paul Felder has nothing to lose here. He's stepping in on short notice. He's moving up in weight to fight a welterweight. Uh, if he goes out there and just kind of throws caution to the wind and has a fight of the year caliber brawl with Mike Perry, even if he comes out on the losing end of it, maybe his stock still goes up in the UFC. But because of the way that he has asked, specifically asked for these opportunities, uh, and kind of acted jilted when he did not get them, I wonder if that same kind of political capital is there for him or if he indeed needs to look really good in this fight. Like if, if he get, just gets knocked out by Mike Perry, uh, does he lose some, some like, uh, you know, political position inside the company? Uh, I feel like there's a little bit more at stake for him here than there would be against a normal kind of like replacement fighter who's moved up in weight. Yeah. Well, and I also feel like one of the reasons he may have felt, like he had to create this opportunity for himself was because of how willing the UFC would be to just totally let him get screwed again. Like if, if he had not seen this and said, okay, like here's a place where I can get in and, and not lose all my training that I've done so far. Like it seemed like he was motivated to do that because the UFC would totally not mind if it just had to say, well, sorry again, Paul Felder, things just didn't go your way. But he does have stuff to lose. I mean, he's on that winning streak. You're trying to make a little bit of noise. You're trying to get attention in a a division and at a time when that's harder and harder to do. So a lot. You could lose a lot of momentum if you go out there and just get knocked out by Mike Perry. And then afterwards, I mean, you would hope people would say like, well, he went up a weight class and he did it on short notice. He gets some tough guy points for that. And he went out there and let it all hang out and, you know, whatever. But it doesn't always work that way. Yeah, three wins in a row right now for Paul Felder, and five uh, of his last six have been victories. And, of course, as you alluded to earlier, the last three have all been stoppages, so he's on a nice little run. Uh, I know we are going to do a joint just saying stuff. In a way. This week. And I think that it's a topic that we are equipped to spend a few minutes, let's say, talking about. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if we want to uh, move on to that 
right now. By unless, all means. Unless there's anything else that you wanted to say to, to put a cap on Mike Perry, Paul Felder. Please don't fuck with this one, MMA gods. We're begging you. Come on. Just saying stuff this week, Ben. I know we're going to address the same topic, and that is uh, Ivy versus Fulton. Yeah. From this past week. A fight that, frankly, feels like it was forged by the MMA gods for the specific purpose of discussion on the co-main event podcast. Heavyweight title fight, by the way. Yeah, what was the organization this was in? Combat. Coliseum Combat, I believe. Coliseum Combat. In Indiana. Out there in Indiana. Uh, How do you want to break down the action of this? Because I know uh, the original reports indicated that Jonathan Ivey faked a heart attack to perhaps throw Travis Fulton. I hope that the people who listen to this show know who Travis Fulton is, like the original Iron Man of mixed martial arts. I'm just going to go ahead and go ahead and say he's had 10,000 fights. Yeah. He's that's, fought. That's accurate. He fought, he's fought all over. He's fought every weekend. He's getting up there in years at this point. Uh, Jonathan Ivey does some kind of rope a dope theatrics inside the cage, floors him with a punch, follows up against the cage with, with strikes on the ground. Uh, we got, who's the referee here? Gary Copeland, Little Brock. Little Brock, Gary Copeland. Doesn't stop the fight in a timely enough fashion for Jonathan Ivey. So he ends up standing up in a fight that it appeared he was on the verge of winning and tapping out, not only to lose the fight, but to concede the Coliseum Combat Heavyweight title. That's right. So All that inside of one round. Yeah, all that inside of like three minutes, right? <laughs> like this thing's not a lengthy fight at all. Uh, afterwards, he says, no, I didn't fake a heart attack. He kicked me in the ribs, and so I decided to do the thing where I act like it hurt more than it did to try to sucker him in close and then throw a counter. Uh, he also says he stopped punching Travis Fulton in the face because Travis Fulton is his one of his idols, one of his heroes in the sport, and he didn't want to like hand out any uh, punishment, any more punishment that was necessary. Uh, a decision that Travis Fulton, by the way, seems befuddled by, at least according to his Facebook update. But I know that there was some stuff, and I'm assuming this is what it was, that you wanted to talk about for your Just Saying stuff. Well, I mean, Travis Holton, to his credit, I think was able, in the Facebook post afterwards, one thing, he said that that's going to be it for him. He's retiring after over 300 fights. Uh, But he also, he was kind of understanding in a way, because he was like, hey, maybe I could have kept fighting and maybe I would have won the fight later. We'll we'll never know. Uh, I didn't feel like I was that hurt. But he also said, you know, I didn't remember... The post-fight interview, I didn't remember leaving the cage, so I was definitely kind of hurt there. Uh, but, yeah, it is an interesting thing when you see somebody like Jonathan Ivey who is saying, like, hey, the referee did not step in here, and I'm not going to continue punching Travis Fulton because he's my idol. And Travis Fulton said, I thought about my idol, Dan Severn. Could I continue punching Dan Severn in the face over and over again? Especially when, like, toward the end of his career where Dan Severn is fighting every weekend and losing some that he shouldn't. I don't think I could do it. Uh, kind of a weirdly heartwarming episode to come out of a fucking bizarre incident. Uh, when we haven't even mentioned the weirdest part yet, and that is that Jonathan Ivey has a portrait of Travis Fulton tattooed on his own leg. That's right. I interviewed Jonathan Ivey to ask him about this fight, and he was talking about how Travis Fulton was his hero and explained why, you know, how he'd become his hero. And he said... Hey, man, he's a goddamn legend, man. I got him on my leg, man. And I did not realize at first that he meant he literally had Travis Fulton's face tattooed on his leg. You thought maybe I got him on my leg was a Midwestern yeah, colloquialism? Well, well, he's from Tennessee. Man. I thought maybe it was like a Southern thing that I don't know about. 
You know, you put him on. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's my boy. I got him on my leg. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I didn't know. Uh, but then I asked about Jonathan Ivey's tattoos because he is covered, absolutely covered in tattoos. Many of them, some questionable choices. I said, how many tattoos do you have? He said, oh, man, I don't know. Uh, all I know is I've run out of space to tattoo. He said he's done with tattoos because he just doesn't have any more room. And I said, like, you know, how, how did that happen? Here's his quote. Here's, here's his answer. It's a weird thing. I got sponsored by a tattoo shop, and then every time I got bored, I would just go to the tattoo shop. I went from having like four tattoos to looking like this in about 10 or 12 months. It was strange. You go back and watch some of my old fights on YouTube, and I've got like four tattoos. I don't know. I feel like I'm not the guy I look like, but I accept it. Wow. I'm just saying that is a level of introspection and honesty maybe we should all aspire to. That is also a certain kind of person who, when they're bored, goes to the tattoo shop and just says, what do you got? Put it on there. Right there. I'm just saying this story is good? Pos- positive? Is, is this a positive story? It's a, it's a story. It's an MMA story. It's a thing that happened. It's so MMA. You couldn't make it up. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back on Friday of this week for a streaming event for the Patreons to precede uh, the tough finale. And then next week, we'll be back to break down all the stuff that happened on the podcast proper over at UFC 226. And uh, maybe to look ahead to Fight Night Dos Santos versus Ivanov, which will be July 14th emanating from Boise, Idaho. So in a manner of speaking, right here in our neighborhood. Yeah. If you and feel like driving eight to 12 hours to sure, go to another place. Which I do not. But we will also be doing that book club episode where we preview the trilogy fight in a way between Tito Ortiz and Chuck Liddell. You got about a week and a half to get your book reports in. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I wish you could have seen my face when I was reading Tito's book and we get to the part where he and Jenna Jameson start messaging each other on my MySpace. Wow. I wish I could have seen your face also. I was, it was just like, like, you know, the thing where you're rubbing your hands together. Like, oh, goody, here it comes. That's my face.